Well, like Dan said, we're continuing our series. And last week, I spoke to you about the calling of Moses. This week, I want to speak to you about the 10 plagues. Now, you're probably wondering, like, what good can come from this message? None of us want to experience those 10 plagues. But I promise you, we're going to go deep today. There's probably going to be a little bit more teaching and less preaching. But I'm going to invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. We're going to read some select portions of Exodus 7 to 11. Yes, that's about four to five chapters. And we're going to read them. And I encourage you to follow with me on the screen at home. And we're going to move through these 10 plagues together in one voice. Starting in Exodus 7, verse 17 to 18. Let's read together. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. Moving to Exodus 8, 1 to 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go, so that they may worship me. If you've refused to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom and onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and on your people, and into your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will come upon you and your people and all your officials. Moving down to chapter 8, verse 16 to 17. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. They did this. And when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came upon the people and animals. And all the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. Moving down to Exodus 8, verse 20 to 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the river and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials, on your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies, even the ground will be covered with them. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. Moving down to chapter 9, verse 1 to 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. And if you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, The hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock in the field, on your horses, donkeys, and camels, and on your cattle, sheep, and goats. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. Moving to Exodus 9, 8 to 9. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the furnace And have Moses toss it in the air in the presence of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt. And festering boils will break out on people and animals throughout the land. 
Moving to Exodus 9, 22 to 24. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards the sky so that hail will fall all over Egypt on people and animals and on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff towards the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down to the ground. And so the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. Almost done, moving to Exodus 10, 4 to 5. If you refuse to let them go, I will bring locusts into your country tomorrow. They will cover the face of the ground so that it cannot be seen. They will devour what little you have left after the hail, including every tree that is growing in your fields. Exodus 10, 21 to 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky, and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. And lastly, Exodus 11, 4 to 7. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says, about midnight I will go through Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes distinction between Egypt and Israel. Great reading. Good job. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Exodus chapters 7 to 11. Lord, this is a heavy scripture with a lot of bad things happening. But Lord, we know that you have a plan and a purpose in all things. You want to show us your power. You want to show us your might and your strength. In the way you dealt with Moses, Lord, you are going to show us, Lord, that you are the all-powerful one. You're omnipotent, God. You're all-powerful. And so we trust you today, and we lean to you, and we look into you, God, into your word for understanding, for application, so that we may obey. So, Father, you never change. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We recognize that this is heavy, but we recognize that there's something to be learned here today. Teach your people, we pray. We ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon me, Lord, so I can communicate with boldness and with conviction and with clarity the truth that you want to speak to your people. They have not come to hear my words. They've come to hear from the living God. Let them hear the word of the Lord today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. This morning, there's no preamble. We're just going to jump right into the text because we have a lot of work to do. And I want to make the most of our time together and share three points with you this morning about the greatness of God in relation to other gods, the greatness of God in relation to magical powers, and the greatness of God and the sovereignty of God in relationship to hardened hearts. The first point, God is greater than all gods. It's a great way to start. See, Egypt was a polytheistic nation. They believed in many gods, but the Israelites were a monotheistic people believing in one God. The Egyptians had over 2,000 gods and goddesses 
that they worshipped on a regular basis. You see, it is in Exodus 12, verse 12, that we discover that one of the main motivations behind God's outpouring of the ten plagues on Egypt was because of their gods. The scripture says, I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The question remains as to whether these gods, do they really exist or do they not exist? Are they a figment of our imagination? Are they just uh, models of clay and of stone and of precious metal? Are they mere idols that have no power or are they actually real powerful gods? Well, monolatry is a transitory phase as people migrate their theology from moving from being a polytheistic people belief in many gods to strict monotheism, the existence in one God. It is the worship of one God without the denial of the existence of other gods. They all exist still. The superiority of God among the gods is a popular concept that we all find in the book of Psalms. You see, I want you to note the uppercase G and the lowercase G in the text. The psalmist Asaph in Psalm 82 verse 1, he noted, God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. We see this to refer to those fallen angels, those principalities or those powers that still exist in the heavenly supernatural realm. The psalmist David in Psalm 86 verse 8 prayed, Among the gods there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. In Psalm 95, verse 3, he declared, For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In Psalm 96, verse 4, he observed, For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. In Psalm 97, verse 9, he compared, For you, Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. And lastly, in Psalm 135, verse 5, he confirmed, I know that the Lord is great, that our Lord is greater than all gods. See, the book of Psalms made it clear that, it, that there was no comparison to our God. There's no one like him in all the earth. He is above all gods. See, the first plague that was an affront to the Egyptian god named Happy, and no, he wasn't happy. His name just happens to be Happy. Now, Happy was said to be one of the children of Horus. He had control over the Nile and all of its flooding cycles. And this god was androgynous, having a male head and yet a female body. And in this first play, God was publicly ridiculing false gods like Happy. God created the Nile. And in this first plague, he demonstrated that he alone has control over it. The second plague was a challenge to the Egyptian goddess named Heket. Heket was an Egyptian goddess of fertility and childbirth, represented by, what? A frog. And in this second plague, God showed the Egyptians that what was a symbol of blessing would become a sign of curse and of judgment. The God of Israel... The creator of all things, the creator of even frogs, is much more powerful than Heket. The third plague was a shaming of the Egyptian god named Geb. And Geb was the god of the earth. In this third plague, God turned the dust of Egypt into lice. 
We recall that it was God who created Adam out of the dust. And now we think of how numerous the dust of the ground would be, similar to that of counting the sand on the seashore, an impossible task. And if each dust particle became lice, imagine the problematic nature of this plague for every person and every animal, every living thing in Egypt. The fourth plague was the questioning of the power of the Egyptian god named Kefri. Kefri had a human body with the head of a flying scarab, representing the rising sun, creation, and the renewal of life. And until this point, the three plagues impacted Egyptians and Hebrews alike. However, there's a shift in the narrative. And from this point onwards, we see that it's the Israelites are treated differently than the Egyptians in the fourth plague. You see, the land of Goshen, where the Hebrews had lived, would be distinctly protected and exempted from all the flies. All future plagues would be strategically focused on breaking Pharaoh's hardened heart. We move to the fifth plague. The fifth plague was a humbling of the Egyptian goddess named Hathor. Hathor had a human body and the head of a cow or the headdress with cow horns and a sun disc in the middle. She was worshipped as the maternal deity. And this plague afflicted the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the cattle, the sheep, and the goats. Yet not one of the Hebrew livestock died while all of the Egyptians' livestock died. The sixth plague was a disgracing of the Egyptian goddess named Isis. Many people know who Isis is in mythology. Isis was recognized as a goddess of healing and peace. And this plague required no conversation with Pharaoh. It immediately preceded the plague of the livestock. And as ashes from a furnace were tossed up into the air, festering boils broke out on the skin of the Egyptians and their animals, except on the Hebrews. And this was a plague from which Isis could not heal her people, the Egyptians. The seventh plague was a forceful display against the Egyptian goddess named Nut. Nut was depicted as a woman with a water pot on top of her head. She was the goddess of the universe and the sky, the stars in the sky. And it is no mistake that God choose, chose to send hail from the sky. This hail would kill anyone and any living thing that was not protected by shelter. God could have killed the Egyptians by now, but he did all this to showcase his power and make his name famous in all the earth. The eighth plague was a message of destruction against the Egyptian god named Seth. Some of you might know of Seth. Seth had a human body and the head of an unknown mythical creature. Some have said to, for it to be a dog, an aardvark, or a fox. And he was the god of war, deserts, storms, disorder, and violence. And this massive storm of insects covered the ground, making it appear black. They destroyed all the remaining crops in the field and the fruit on the trees after the hail. Nothing remained, very little remained. And just as quickly as the locusts were blown in by a very strong east wind, they were quickly blown out by a west wind. The ninth plague was a usurpation of worship from the Egyptian god named Ra. And Ra is famously known as the god of the sun. See, he had a human body and he had the head of a falcon. 
He was said to be creator God, Ra, the creator God. But we read in Scripture something very different. Psalm 113, verse 3, offers us the corrective. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The man named Job, he gives us a clue as to this ninth plague and how it's even possible. See, Job 9, 7 says, He speaks to the sun and it doesn't shine. He seals off the light of the stars. Our God has control over his creation. The tenth plague was the humbling of no other God except Pharaoh, the son of Ra, in the flesh. See, God foreknew that this plague would be the one that would convince Pharaoh to let the Hebrews go so that they would worship their God. And Pharaoh, being the son of Ra, is like Jesus, the incarnate one, the only son of the Father. You can see the parallelism here. Pharaoh's firstborn was the prince of Egypt and the next one to be lying as Pharaoh of Egypt. And not only did God kill the firstborn child of Egypt and the firstborn of their cattle, he chose to destroy Egypt's future. He chose to destroy their very own next God. And God graciously, he passed over the homes of the Hebrews with the blood of the Passover lamb that was placed on the doorposts of their homes. Friends, why do I go into so much detail about Egyptian religion? I do this because we live in a pluralistic world where there are many gods, but I want you to be convinced today that our God is greater than all gods. See, if the ten plagues of Egypt show us that our God is greater than Happy and Heket and Geb and Kephri and Hathor and Isis and Nut and Seth and Ra and Pharaoh of Egypt, then our God is certainly greater than today's gods. Our God is greater than Allah of Islam. Our God is greater than Brahma of Hinduism. Our God is greater than Buddha of Buddhism. Our God is greater than Vaguru of Sikhism. Our God is greater than Lord Mahavir of Jainism. Our God is greater than Ahura Mazda of Zoroastrianism. Our God is greater. And the Shema of Israel found in Deuteronomy 6.4 is still so true for Christians today. Church, here today, hear, O Israel, hear, O church, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Second point this morning is God is more powerful than magic. When we read the 10 plagues, we imagine them as a one-time phenomenon, never to be seen again. They were not natural events, but they were supernatural events from the hand of God. And the Egyptians had never seen anything like this before. They would never see anything like it again. One of the things that we learn as we read Exodus 7 to 11 is how the Egyptian religion was one deeply rooted in magic. The magicians of Egypt, they play an important role in the Exodus narrative. And first they reproduce the staff becoming a snake in Exodus 7, 11 to 12. But Moses' snake swallowed up their snakes. Second, they reproduced the Nile becoming blood in Exodus 7, 22. But they could not turn it back to water and they had to go dig for holes along the Nile River in order to find drinking water. Third, they were also able to make frogs come upon the land in Exodus 8, 7, but they could not get rid of the frogs and only added to the initial problem. 
See, is the Bible teaching us that there is power in magic? My answer is yes. I believe there are some forms of magic and sorcery that are dark and deceptive, and they have evil power. For everything that God does through his divine power, Satan responds with a counterfeit power. Nevertheless, something radically changed all of a sudden in the text. When we reach Exodus 8, 18 to 19, when it came to the plague of the gnats, the magicians of Egypt were unable to replicate what God did with their magic. And they realized that these plagues were the work of a divine being. The scripture says, but when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. And since the gnats were on people and animals everywhere, the magician said to Pharaoh, listen to this, this is the finger of God. And unlike King Belshazzar of Babylon who saw the finger of God writing on his palace wall in, Deuteronomy, in Daniel chapter 5, verses 5 to 6, the Egyptian magicians, even without physically seeing the finger of God or the hand of God, they knew without no mistaking that the God of the Hebrews was behind all that was taking place in Egypt. Pharaoh and his, magi and his magicians started losing trust in their own secret arts, in magic. In Exodus 9, 11, we see these magicians finally overcome by the sixth plague. The magicians, the scripture says, the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them and all of the Egyptians. This physical ailment was too much for them to bear and no abracadabra could reverse the effects. Friends, who can stop the Lord Almighty? No one and nothing. As Apostle Paul in Romans 8.31 questioned, if God is for us, who can be against us? As the Apostle John declared in 1 John chapter 4, 4, verse 4, you dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And for those of you who have even doubted it or even dabbled with it, magic and sorcery is real. It's a real demonic power behind those things. But I want you to be convinced today, based on what we have read in Exodus, that our God, our God, your God, my God, is more powerful than magic. Third point this morning, God is sovereign over hardened hearts. The question remains, did Pharaoh harden his own heart? Or did God harden Pharaoh's heart? And when we read of the first and third and fifth plagues, we observe that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. But we don't know if this was his own doing or if this was God's doing. It is left ambiguous for the reader, a mere observation of the text. We have to look in a little deeper. And when we read the second and the fourth and the seventh plagues, we observe that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Then... We read in the 6th and the 8th and the ninth and the 10th plagues, and we observe that it was God who hardened Pharaoh's heart. What exactly is happening here? You see, from plagues 1 to 5, Pharaoh had a choice to humble himself before God, but he hardened his heart. 
Then from plague 6 to 10, God chose to harden Pharaoh's heart. He chose to humble him and make him submissive through the hard road that he would have to endure to the loss of his own son. The lesson is that if you will not cooperate with God, God will not cooperate with you. See, grace and mercy are only for a time and will one day run out and the wrath and the judgment of God will begin. I want you to see the change in the conditions of Pharaoh's heart that eventually led to the Exodus event. In Exodus 8.8, we read, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. See, Pharaoh thought he could negotiate with Moses and with Aaron. If you do this for me, I will do that for you. But that's not how it works with God. See, Pharaoh did not understand that, that it was God who was calling all the shots here. And in mercy, God relented by killing the frogs, but Pharaoh did not keep his promise. Later in Exodus 8, 25 to 28, we read, Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God here in the land. But Moses said, That would not be right. The sacrifices we offer the Lord, our God, would be detestable to the Egyptians. And if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? We must take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God as he commanded us. And Pharaoh said, I will let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the wilderness, but you must not go far. Now pray for me. Selfish man, Pharaoh. Pharaoh tried to control how far the people would go. He, He restricted them first to the borders of his own land. And then he extended his restriction to the wilderness area surrounding his land. And as soon as the flies left, Pharaoh acted deceitfully and he lied again, not allowing the Israelites to leave. Pharaoh changed his approach. In Exodus 9, 27 to 28, then Pharaoh, he summoned Moses and Aaron. And this time I have sinned. Listen to this. I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. But don't be fooled. Don't be fooled by Pharaoh's confession of his sins. It's not clear that this was true repentance because Pharaoh sinned again after the hail was stopped. He was a repeat sinner, a repeat offender, a liar. Pharaoh tried another one of his tactics, finally, in Exodus 10, 10 to 11. And Pharaoh said, the Lord be with you. If I let you go along with your women and children, clearly you are bent on evil. No, have only the men go and worship the Lord since that's what you have been asking for. Then Moses and Aaron were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. You see how cunning this man Pharaoh is? He wanted to divide the people. He said yes to their request to go and worship. But he said no to all their people going to worship. Because certainly if the men go, they'll have to return to Egypt because of their women and their children who remain there. Then finally they received notice of their release from Pharaoh's grip in Exodus 12, 31 to 33. And the scripture says, During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, 
up. Leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds, as you have said, and go, and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise they said, we will all die. To take their flocks and their herds with them meant that this was a permanent move. There was no going back. And if Pharaoh didn't allow this, he expected more plagues to befall him and his people. And they took with them articles of gold and silver from the Egyptians. In fact, they really plundered the people. And Pharaoh's last request was that as they would go, that they would not curse him, but instead they would bless him. See, friends, if God did not harden Pharaoh's heart, the Hebrews would have remained in Egypt and never experienced the Exodus event. In fact, God had to harden Pharaoh's heart so hard to the point that it shattered the moment his firstborn son died. In Romans 9, 17 to 18, we read the Apostle Paul's summary on this matter. And he says, for scripture says of Pharaoh, this is scripture interpreting scripture, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. We can harden our hearts. God can also harden our hearts. But I want to remind you today that God can break the hardest of hearts. I warn you today to not harden your own heart against God. If you find yourself here today with a heart hardened towards God, there is a cardiac surgeon who can do invasive surgery on your heart today. And as God has said through the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I pray that you will always keep a soft heart towards the Lord. Now many of us would like to believe that these ten plagues were a thing of the past we are distant from these events in the Bible. It makes it seem impossible for us today to experience these things. But I beg to differ. I want to let you know that the earth will experience more plagues as we draw near to the end times. And let me tell you, the end times are coming soon. We don't know when. We don't know how. But we know it's coming. And the plagues of Exodus mirror the judgments of Revelation. And my intention is not to scare you. My intention is that those who have faith in Christ, we believe in the rapture. I want you to be confident of the very things you believe in, that we will be saved from having to experience these plagues during the years of tribulation on earth. But it's important to know that many of the things that happened in Exodus will happen again. And as I conclude and the worship team comes and prepares Let's review just a few of these reoccurring events together. You see, the first plague of Egypt is seen again in Revelation 8, 8 to 9. The scripture says, The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. But that's not all. 
The two witnesses also have the authority and the power to turn blood, uh, water into blood. In Revelation eleven six, they have the power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have the power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Then again in Revelation 16, 3 to 4, the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned into blood like that of a dead person. And every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. The second plague of Egypt is seen again in Revelation 9.13. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. The sixth plague of Egypt is seen again in Revelation 16.2 and 10-11. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. And people gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. The seventh plague of Egypt is seen in Revelation 8, verse 7. And the first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. We see it again in Revelation eleven nineteen. Then God's temple in heaven was open, and within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant. And there came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, an earthquake and a severe hailstorm. And we see this one last time in Revelation 16, 21. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell on people. And they cursed God and counted the plagues of hell because the plague was terrible. The eighth plague of Egypt is seen in Revelation 9, verses 3 to 5. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of the scorpion of the earth. And they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. And lastly, the ninth plague of Egypt is seen in Revelation 16.10. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. You tell me, is it a coincidence or not? I don't think so. There is a pending wrath that the Lord will pour out upon the earth. And we don't know the date when it will begin. It could start today. It could start tomorrow. It could start years from now. We don't know. But perhaps you're listening to me today and you have worshipped other gods. Perhaps you have dabbled in magic. Perhaps you have hardened your heart towards God. And I am talking to you today. If you don't know Jesus, friends, the events described in Revelation will be something that not only you hear about, it would be something that you live through and have to experience. But here's the good news. A simple, free decision to accept Jesus in your heart today 
If you make that decision, it can change the course of your destiny. I believe that God can save you from calamity. I believe God can protect you from the things that will happen in the days to come. We don't know what's next. But I'd rather have faith in Jesus Christ than put my faith in other gods, in magic, or in my own self. Would you turn to Jesus today? Let's pray.